Hey, welcome to a special condensed season two of the On Verge podcast, where we'll be delivering five episodes in 20 days leading up to the October 9th Ministry Leadership Conference sponsored by the Northwest Coast Presbytery. This conference is called Verge, and the theme this year is Think Again. And season two of this podcast will include shorter conversations with each of the fabulous speakers or worship leaders for the Verge Leadership Conference. So learn more and register for Verge at verge.northwestcoast.org. That's V-E-R-G-E dot northwestcoast, all spelled out, dot org. Reverend Dr. Grace Jason Kim is my guest today for On the Verge. Dr. Kim is a professor of theology at the Earlham School of Religion in Richmond, Indiana. She was born in South Korea. She and her family immigrated to Canada in 1975, where she grew up and attended college, did her Master of Divinity and PhD at the University of Toronto. Since 2001, she has published over 20 books, 70 other articles and publications, and is now a host of the Madang podcast that you can get from any podcast service. Dr. Kim is the mother of three, spouse of one, and a whole lot of energy and conversation. I am so jazzed to get to be here with Dr. Grace Jason Kim. Grace, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a joy to be with you and on your podcast. So thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you so much for joining us for Verge, our conference coming up in a month or so. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. So I'm still preparing, but can't wait for the event. I wish it was in person, but seems like everything's online. So I'm very looking forward to that too. So thank you so much for inviting me to be one of the speakers. Oh my gosh, is it? easy to get to know your work because you've written like 20 books, 70 articles, and now you're hosting a podcast and you are prolific. (laughs) Yeah. How do you do that? You know what? When I uh, graduated from Knox College, I grew up in Canada. Uh, My PhD is from the University of St. Michael's University, which is inside the University of Toronto. And that was 2001. So that was 20 years ago. I said, by the time I retire, if I have three books out, I'm going to be so thrilled. I said, that is my goal. And then I don't know how the 20 books came, but it's very exciting because for me, the 20th book will be coming out in November. And I received my PhD exactly 20 years ago in November, around that same time, November 9th. So I never imagined 20 books, but it's a thrill (laughs) to have done 20 books. My first book came out, The Grace of Sophia, in 2001. Uh And then I didn't write my next book until maybe nine or 10 years later because I had three little kids at home. So it was so hard for me to write. So once they started getting into elementary school, that's when I started to write. So, yeah, the last 19 books were kind of in the last 10 or 11 years. (laughs) That is amazing. That is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and about the spirituality that you learned growing up? So, yes, I was born in Korea 
1975, uh, my parents decided to immigrate to Canada. So I was five years old and we first landed in Toronto. And then a couple months later, we moved to London, Ontario, which is about two and a half hours west of Toronto. So I kind of grew up in this small town and there are Korean immigrant families. And when we first immigrated, we never went to church, but a family there encouraged me and my sister. So there's two of us siblings and my parents said, go ahead. So we started going to church. Maybe I was seven years old. And as an immigrant, if you don't belong to a church, it's really hard to make friends. It's hard to find jobs. It's hard to be part of a community because the church, particularly the Korean immigrant church and many immigrant churches today, the church serves more like an extended family. So Mm. you hold birthday parties there, uh, weddings, anniversaries you celebrate, you share food. And if you've ever visited Korea or any parts of Asia, food is so important to us. So we kind of had to belong to a community like that to feel part of the wider Korean or the wider immigrant family. So after we started going, then my parents um, ended up going too. So we ended up joining the church, got baptized and spirituality spirit, you know, that was so much part of our life since we started going to church. And then my dad decided that, you know, we needed to expand our Canadianness or our English skills. So he started driving us to various churches throughout the week. So on a Friday night, we went to Missionary Alliance Church, and that was more for fellowship. So, but I think that really helped with um, this spiritual identity. And then on Saturday mornings, we went to Korean school. And then Sunday morning, we went to a Baptist church for a Sunday school lesson. So that was very interesting for me to, to be with other white kids um, on a Sunday. And it was a really big church. And then in the afternoon, we went to the Korean Presbyterian church. And then the evening, we went to a different Baptist church. You know, back then when I was a child, there were all these Sunday evening services. So all of those kind of contributed to my own spiritual upbringing. Um, my parents practiced fasting, particularly during Easter and other um, special seasons um, in the church calendar, and made us fast too. So there was this other practice of fasting and prayer. And because we lived in this small city, London, Ontario, my parents felt um, they wanted a larger community. So they would drive either a couple hours to Detroit. These were all Korean revival services or two hours the other way and go to Toronto for these revival services. And they would, not, they would be over a weekend. So I remember being always at these revival services and many of them were like a Pentecostal style. So if you've ever ever been to a Korean church, it doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian Baptist or Pentecostal, we worship in similar styles and the denomination doesn't mean so much to the immigrant churches. So it was these very spiritual revival 
services that my parents attended. So we as kids just played outside and we had a ball of a time playing hide and go seek and tag and eating with other friends. But the importance of attending church and attending a very conservative Korean church also meant, you know, no shopping on Sundays, you know, drinking was bad, smoking was bad. So it was a very conservative upbringing. Prayer was important. Fasting was important. Reading scripture was important. And then not missing a Sunday was important too. So that was kind of my spiritual upbringing. And actually it, it made a big impact on me um, as an adult and as a parent too, because I've moved away from that, but then it, you know, these remnants of it come back, especially when it comes to child rearing. So my kids are now all out of the house, but when they were young till about when they were 12 years old, you know, we did this spiritual practice of prayer and reading scripture every night as a family. And then when the kids started getting busy and so forth, we stopped, but I always say, you have to do it on your own. So I try to encourage that in my own family. The saturation of church and worship and fellowship and connections through church was a big part of your childhood. Oversaturation. Oversaturation. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> And, you know, you embraced that, but you also broadened it, it seems. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, being in the very conservative church, I felt there were so many rules and, and there wasn't so much this emphasis of taking care of one another. It was a very personal piety, uh, you know, be right with God, um, ask for forgiveness of your own personal sins. After my grade 10, our family moved to Toronto. So we left the small city, now moved to Toronto so that we are in a big Presbyterian church in Toronto. And I had a lot of questions about everything, about faith, uh, about God, about church, about racism and sexism in the church and outside in the community. And so when I went to seminary, my scope of theological understanding kind of widened and it wasn't so much this personal you know, piety and rightness with God, but I, I kept broadening to the wider society and the wider social justice issue. So the personal experiences of racism came more of a systemic understanding of racism, that it's not just against me and not just against my family, but it's systemic. Racism is there in our schools, in our churches, in our, in our society, and we need to do something about it. So my theological scope had widened and, and these questions of justice and injustice also got embedded in there. So that comes up in my own writing, in my own speaking, in my books, because, you know, I'm not living in now a small Korean community. I live in this larger community, in the faith community, and in the age of, you know, Zooming and, and internet, the world has shrunk. So, as the world shrinks, we need to be able to take care of each other, and especially those who are so different from you. churches did a, uh, a series during the pandemic on healing our broken humanity. Oh, 
that's how we first got connected to you and your writing. And then when we were conceiving of doing this conference this year, we said, let's invite Grace. This would be fantastic. <laughs> I always love to ask people something about what they're developing next. You are prolific. You could just keep being prolific, but you just started a new podcast called Madang. Would you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Madang and what you're excited about with that podcast? Yeah. So I'm so excited that the church used um, Healing Our Broken Humanity, co-written with Dr. Joseph Hill, because that was our intention when we wrote the book, that either individuals or families or communities or church groups will use the book because of the way we let we laid out the book. I'm writing less for the academic area because the audience is so small. So um, more and more books are becoming more for the public and for those who are just interested in spirituality or Christianity. And because I was invited to do so much podcast on my books, I'm going to host one of these podcasts one day. That's great. I, I didn't even know anything about podcasting, to be honest. I didn't even know what equipment I needed. I didn't know what platform I had to use. I did this all blindly. And I and then I had forgotten the name of the podcast I had come up with. I came with my... With the word madang because I've written about madang for the World Council of Churches for their blogs. If you've ever visited Korea and in many of the Chinese homes too and Japanese homes, there's a, usually a gate and then you open the gate and then there was like a dirt ground with maybe a little table, a low rise table. And then from that madang, you know, you enter the different rooms of the house. So in our Western mind, if you think of a courtyard, but a really tiny courtyard, because when I say courtyard, they think of this majestic courtyard. That's not it. These homes were tiny and the madang was tiny. But the interesting part about the madang, because it opens up, you know, maybe the homes had only three rooms, like a main room and then two bedrooms. You know, these homes, traditional homes were tiny, but the rooms all, had doors from the madang usually. So everybody had to go through the madang. Everybody, you know, in the hot summer days, you know, they sat around the low rise table, they ate there, they chit chatted, they gossiped there. It was a very important place because you just enter the madang and then you, you went into the house. So that's okay. how I came up with the title because I want my guests to come into my madang and I uh. want then the world to enter my madang. And most of my guests are from books, authors, and I want to discuss important questions rising from the book. Madang is about Christianity, religion, and culture. I wanted to go beyond Christianity because I think it's very important to do interfaith dialogue, but also tied in with culture because of all these experiences of racism and sexism, I wanted to bring that in. So my second guest was on Dr. Russell Jung, who teaches at San Francisco State University. And it was mm -hmm. right after the March 16th shooting. And I felt it was such an important topic to talk about API hate crimes and, and anti-Asian uh, racism that I brought him in. He's an author of many books, but that was so important to kind of have him in to discuss it. So that's how I started Madang. And then after a few episodes, Christian Sentry um, invited me to kind of be part of the Christian Sentry 
and now they have me as one of their podcasts. So, you know, they are uh, listening to the wider community, how Christians are becoming less white. We have more and more people of color in our different denominations and Christians here in the U.S. So they are expanding their audience. So I'm really honored to have Christian Century host uh, my Madame podcast. Congratulations, by the way. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it is, isn't it? As you know, because you're doing what it's yeah. so much work. So I have guests booked till January, but it's it's a lot of fun uh, meeting different guests. So you'll be coming to speak with us live on October 9th. Could you give us a little teaser about what you're going to be talking with us on at Verge? And our theme this year is Think Again. So first of all, thank you so much for putting that conference. I think it's such an important conference. Sometimes Presbyterians, PCUSA, we think we're so white, but we're becoming less white. So I think your invitation of these um, diverse speakers, I'm just so grateful when PCUSA are able to do these and, and do these things and make it so diverse because the future of the church is going to be more and more diverse. So I kind of called it, I think, um, intercultural ministry after the pandemic. And that was in the springtime. And I thought by end of summer will be end of the pandemic, but I don't see the end anymore. So I think even during the pandemic, we have to kind of rethink and reimagine how church is going to be. And, you know, people are doing that, how we worship is changing, how we try to build community is changing because so much of it has to be now online. And I think after the pandemic, you know, we're going to still have this big online presence. I think that's not going to go away. And I think that's going to be for all places like seminaries and and different conferences are going to go hybrid. I think, you know, education, every work, people are going to do work differently in different companies. So I think this online is not going to go away. So I think we have to do a lot of reimagining, but the key word I want to just kind of introduce is intercultural. Um, I think we've heard of multicultural and cross-cultural, but I think now um, we have to think more about intercultural. And I think that may be enough teaser. So if you want to know more about what I'm going to say, you have to sign up. Outstanding. And you can register. And yes, it is open. Anybody who wants to join can join. Okay. That's good because I did share it. <laughs> good. It's verge.northwestcoast.org. And you can register from there. That's great. So, Grace, as you think about this conference and people participating in it, is there anything that you would like to share with folks to help them prepare their minds and hearts to encounter this well? Um, I think everybody, you know, every day I think we wake up and we should always start with an open heart. I think uh, when I think about my own spiritual upbringing, you know, this really 
conservative and I was so restricted in so many ways of how I understand who God is and what my role is in the church, you know, with sexism, you know, I never had any women leaders and women ministers or women uh, teachers around me. So I think we all, we should come to verge with an open mind, open heart, and be open to new ways of thinking and being challenged. I think, you know, when scripture talks about new creatures, every being new and being renewed every day, I think that's what it is. We should not be the same as we were 10 years ago. I think our spiritual journey requires of us to change and be challenged and be remolded, new ways of thinking. So I hope people who register, and I hope many will come because it's online and it's virtual, that they will be able to take something away from it in their own ways of ministry. We're all doing different forms of ministry where Wherever we are, whether we're um, cleaning up the streets or making food, it's all different forms of ministry. So I hope people will just come with open hearts and minds and be challenged of how we can do this and think about intercultural. So I noticed you finished your PhD in 2001 and you are a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, but we didn't ordain you until 2011. So what took us so long? Or it might be what took me so long. So, oh, okay. um, yeah, I think it was a bit of both. I think it was a bit of both because um, I was first thinking of getting ordained in Canada. So yeah, when I was sure. doing my MDiv program, I was a candidate, but I started my PhD right after, and I don't know about PCUSA, but PCC, you can't be ordained for further studies. Okay. So because I started right after, I couldn't get ordained. And then when I graduated in 2001, I had two kids, and then I had a third kid in 2002. So there were a lot of, you know, I was a young mom, chaos, so I didn't get ordained. Yeah. And then I came to the U.S. in 2004. So 2004, I was overwhelmed with these three little kids. My youngest was only one. And I I think 2005, I asked Lehigh Presbytery, what do I need to do to be ordained? And they gave me this huge envelope of all these things I need to do. And I said, I can barely even get up in the morning. I'm not, I can't do this. So with three little kids and just new country, new everything, I couldn't. So 2005, I just put the envelope away. And then I think maybe 2009, my kids now, I think we're all in school, elementary school. And I said, maybe I should think about ordination again. So I think I started in 2009. They exempted me from two exams. And I thought, please just exempt me from everything. I said, I can't study anymore. <laughs> but I had to write the two other ones. And then I got ordained. So there was a combination of everything, but it was mostly me okay. why it took so long. <laughs> I'm sure glad we got there in our imperfect yeah, ways. Too. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. When I read through the the titles of your your books and your articles and such, um, there's a there, there's like a pretty persistent theme of hope even when you're addressing really hard stuff. I mean, your latest book is Invisible, you know, Theology and Experience of Asian American Women. That's, that's really difficult to uh, say, look, it felt invisible. 
But it seems like in most of your writing, when you articulate that, you're also creating an avenue. You're creating an opening or you're creating something that creates more hope. And I just wonder, do you do you think about your writing and your work in terms of an ongoing theme or thread? I don't think of them necessarily as themes or threads, but they become like that. Okay. So um, before uh, the book Invisible last year, my other book that came out during the pandemic was Hope in Disarray. Yeah. So I have been writing uh, bits and pieces of hope and I do share a lot of my own personal stories in many of my books. The beginning books, not so much because they were so highly academic, mm-hmm. but I become more and more uh, because I feel like theology comes from our life experiences. So it is through our life experiences that we come to know God and come to also know ourselves. So even in the book Invisible, I think that's the most personal book. And I wrote it during the, I finished it off during the pandemic. And uh, when I got the manuscript, I was like, oh, I put so much of my life in here. And I do share a little bit about the ordination story, Uh which I didn't share now, but there's another part of it. And I thought, oh, there's so much, but it was like a point of no return. I can't delete it because if I delete it, like 25% of the book is going to be gone. So I kept them in and I'm hoping that people, because I'm certain I'm not the only one that experiences things of racism and sexism in the church. I know other women do, and I know other people of color do. So I've, this understanding of invisible invisibility has been part of my whole immigrant story. Well, Dr. Kim, thank you so much for joining me today. You've built my anticipation hugely for October 9th. (laughs) So thank you. And hopefully this will be just another step in in a broader relationship and connection with you. It's always about relationships. So we can't just stop at one event or one thing. We just, it's an ongoing. So hope that we, we can stay in touch and maybe we'll meet in person one day. So thank you so much for all that you do. And thank you for inviting me for this podcast and for Verge. Thank you so much. about my energizing guest, Dr. Grace Jason Kim at gracejisonkim.wordpress.com. Also, listen to her Madang podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. My thanks to Jean Chamont, who is our musical composer and producer, and to Janine Taylor, who is our editor and publicist. I'm Dr. Corey Schlosser-Hall. Thanks for listening.